You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. Let me just pray that God uh, would guide us today by His Spirit. Father, we thank you and praise you for who you are. We thank you uh, for the love um, that you've demonstrated towards us. And I just pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would be present, that he would work uh, in our lives, that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And uh, we just thank you for this time. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Last week we talked about uh, God uh, who... uh, took us who were far off, us who were strangers to the covenant, us who were um, uh, without hope and without God in this world. He took us and he brought us near. Um, He did this by the blood of Christ. He did this for the purpose of taking two hostile groups of people and making them into one new humanity, one new person. Uh, Yes, the church is made up of a diverse group of people uh, with differing cultural backgrounds, differing uh, uh, customs and languages and colors and opportunities and personalities and abilities and a whole host of other things. But the beautiful thing about the church is that in Christ, we are one. We are one. And it doesn't matter if you're in Argentina or Russia or whatever, Uh, We're all worshiping the same God and we're one in Christ. There is no more uh, Jew nor Greek. There is no slave or free. There is no uh, male or female. We are all one in Christ. Before we get into the full implications of the text and what our response should be, I want to take a moment just to explain why I preach the way that I do. Okay? Um, I know that at times I can preach on some very controversial subjects. Um, I also know that in this church, if you've been visiting for any length of time, you know that a week does not go by where we don't talk about sin, uh, where we don't talk about personal sin, local sin, and even national sin. Uh, As a result of this kind of preaching, um, I have been accused of uh, being mean-spirited, of pointing out sins in others, and not pointing out sins in myself and, and stuff like that. Uh, I want to explain why I do that. And if you know me, you know that I am very, I very readily point out my own sin uh, as well. But I want to explain why I do that. And uh, to start with, I want you to turn to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel, it's a prophecy. Um, if you find Psalms, then start to turn, I guess, to the right uh, and it's, you have the big prophet of Isaiah, and then Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel. So Ezekiel chapter 3, uh, there's this false idea in the church today that pointing out sins in others is, it's mean, it's judgmental, it's uh, hypocritical. After all, God is love. God is love, and we need to preach the love of God What I hope you realize is that we do preach the love of God here, but preaching a message of true love also involves warning people regarding the dangers of sin. Warning people that sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from one another as well. And this is what God called his prophet Ezekiel to do. Ezekiel chapter 3 verses 17 through 19, and I want you to hear this, okay? 
Here's what God says to his servant, his prophet Ezekiel. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked ways in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will deliver, you will have delivered your soul. The point that God is making through the prophet is this, that sin is serious. Sin is serious because it brings the wrath of God upon us. Sin is what got our first parents, Adam and Eve, kicked out of the garden. Sin is what plunged the entire human race into a hostile relationship with God. Sin is what caused God to destroy the world with a flood and then later on to destroy two entire cities with fire. The whole time, uh, God was reaching out to the world and being patient with the world. The world continued to sink deeper and deeper into sin, and it grieved the heart of God. I want you to turn to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28, um, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 28. This whole chapter is about blessing and curses. Promised blessing for obedience. As they obey, they will be blessed. But warnings of curses that would come upon them if they disobeyed God. Deuteronomy chapter 28 says this. I'm just going to read the first two verses. It says this, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then he goes on. If you were to read on, he would say, blessed shall you be here and blessed shall you be there. He just talks about blessing after blessing after blessing. Okay? And I want you to do a little bit of study with me here. I want you to look down at the next several verses, beginning of verse 3. And I want you to look at the first word of every verse. And I want you to look until you come to the word but. The word but. Someone tell me where that word comes up as the first word of a verse. Verse 15. Absolutely right. Verse 15. Okay. Verse 15 starts with the word but. Let me remind you, he has been talking about the blessing. If you do this, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. You will be blessed. But then he comes to verse 15 and he says, but, and he goes on to say, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Here's what I want you to notice about that. He spends 14 verses talking about the blessing. How many verses does he talk, does he use talking about the curse? He goes all the way to the end of the chapter. If you were to count those up, he spends 54 verses talking about the curse. Okay? 
54 verses, almost four times as much time warning them to avoid sin that he does talking about the blessings that are theirs as they obey him. I think that this is significant. And if you were to read the prophets, what you would see is that you would see that the majority of the, prophet, the prophetical writings is warnings, warning against the people of God and warnings for the nations that are out there. God seeking to have them turn away from their sins, warning them that if you do this, this is what the consequence is. So I want to ask this question. Is this hateful on the part of God? Is this hateful for him to just be constantly talking about sin and warning against sin? Is it mean-spirited? And the answer is no, it's not. It's the opposite. It is loving to do so. God loved these people too much to allow them to continue in sin. And this is why uh, he spent so much time warning them to turn away from sin. I want you to turn now to the New Testament book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 3. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 3. In the New Testament, John the Baptist comes onto the scene. Uh, John the Baptist is what is known as the forerunner for the Messiah, Jesus. He is going to come and prepare the way. He is going to come and say, the Messiah is coming. You need to get ready for him. And what I want you to know, notice, is that John is filled with the Holy Spirit. And these are his first words to this nation. He says this, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. To repent means to turn around. It means to do a 180. You are walking towards sin and then you turn around and you're walking away from sin and you're walking towards God. That's what it means to repent. So his very first message of God trying to demonstrate his love to the world is one of repent. Skip down to verse 7 and 8 of Matthew chapter 3 and see how he addresses the religious leaders of the day. He says this, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, it is so good to see you. Thank you for coming out to this event. It's great that you're here. No. He says this, you brood of vipers, right? You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's, man, that's a pretty strong message, right? That's not how you build a church, right? But it's a message of repentance, are these words of John, are they hateful words? No, they're not. They're loving words. Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's what I'm doing right now. John is saying, I'm warning you that your religious works are not going to be good enough. Who's warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Well, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? Certainly he had a loving message, right? And the answer is, of course, he did. And his message just happened to be the exact same as John's message. We see this in Matthew chapter 4. If you're in Matthew chapter 3, turn over to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. 
Here, Jesus begins his earthly ministry. He's coming out onto the scene. What will be his first words to the people he's ministering to? Well, we have them. And his first message is what? Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn away from your sin. That's Jesus' message. And it is a message, once again, of love. Finally, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Uh, verses 37 through 40. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 2. Here we find it is the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has come and has filled everyone present. And then Peter gets up and preaches his first message. He has just got done preaching his first message. And the people were listening and they have a question for Peter, and he has an answer for them. Here's what it says, beginning in verse 37. It says this, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? You just told us about the great, the, the great works of God and, and, and what Jesus has come to do to forgive us our sins. What should we do? And Peter said to them, what? Repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words... He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. What's Peter's message? Peter's message is turn away from your sin. It's what separates you from God. Turn away from it. And it's not just a one-time thing. It is a continual thing. He says, save yourself from this crooked and corrupt generation. And I'll submit to you that the writings of Paul, the writings of Peter, James, John, and Jude are all filled with warnings, warnings after warnings. The reason I tell you all of this is because part of my responsibility as a pastor, part of my resp responsibility as a spiritual leader, as a shepherd in this church, is to protect you and myself from this crooked generation. That's what I'm called to do. Jesus and his apostles warned us that many would turn away from the faith in the last days. That supposed Christians would come in the name of Jesus and start to introduce destructive, false teachings about God, all in the name of God, all under the banner of the church. He said that churches would start to turn away from the truth, would start to believe lies, that people would seek out preaching that tickled their ears, that told them exactly what they wanted to hear, that gave them this, just this positive message of, of, of um, self-help. And people would love that. Just, just tell me more. Don't tell me about sin. Don't tell me about, about what I need to do to change my life. Just tell me that I'm good. That they would seek out people who would give a message of peace, peace, with God when there was no peace. You're okay. God's cool with what you're doing. I know that others may call it sin, but you're okay. It's all right. God will not judge you. 
that's what people will seek out. The amount of warning that we receive from Jesus and the prophets should be a testament to the seriousness of sin in this world. And I think should reflect the proportion of time that we spend talking about those warnings as well. There's a whole lot of time spent in the Bible talking about warning people. And I would be a failure as a pastor if I did not warn you to flee from the wrath to come. The prophets spoke to the covenant of people, the covenant people of God. The apostles preached to the world the gospel message, but then they also at the same time spoke many words of warning to the church. Jesus said that in the latter times, the deception coming out of the church would even be so severe that if possible, the very elect of God, those who know God would be deceived. That's a very severe deception and we're seeing it in our world today where the church doesn't even know what's right or wrong anymore. Where the church is starting to call what was evil, now they're calling good. And it's a very serious thing that we were warned about in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 20. If you are in Matthew, you have, or Acts chapter two, uh, several chapters over Acts chapter 20. It's interesting that here in this passage, Paul meets with the elders of the Ephesian church. We just happen to be studying the book of Ephesians, which was written to that church. Paul here, before he even wrote this letter, meets with the elders of this church, the leaders of this church. And as he does, he weeps because he knows that once he leaves, they're going to get it. They're going to get it from the outside and they're going to get it from the inside. They're going to be attacked from the outside and from the inside. And here's what he says, beginning in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. I want you to hear the heart of a true shepherd, a person who truly loves the people that he's been ministering to. It says this, beginning in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he, that's Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. And then he goes on to talk about how he had ministered to them, how he loved them, how he served them faithfully. And then picking up in verse 25, listen to what he says. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. He said, I'm leaving and I know I'm never going to see you again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. When he said that, that should remind us of God's charge to Ezekiel, right? If I tell the wicked that they're going to perish and you don't warn them, I will hold you accountable for their blood. Paul says, I am free from everyone's blood because I have preached the whole counsel of God. And he goes on and he looks at those leaders and here's what he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. Do you hear that? This guy is crying. He's not just coming up on a Sunday morning, if you will, and preaching and then just walking away and saying, I don't care what happens. No, he's instructing them day and night for a period of three years. And he's doing it with tears. He's going home in the, in the silence of his room and he's crying over them. And he's saying, I know that temptation is coming. I know that the enemy is going to fight against them. I know that there's going to be false teaching. And he prays for them with tears. And he admonishes them. To admonish literally means to warn. He is warning them. Paul knew. He knew that the attacks would come from the outside. Those who hate God, those who are completely irreligious, they don't care about, uh, they're atheists, they're whatever, they're, they don't care. They hate God. They want to destroy his church. And he also knew that would come from the inside as well. Those who would come in the name of Jesus those who would speak a message that might be so close to the truth but has fatal errors. And they would come in and say, I know that you think that God said this, but he really didn't say that. Let me reinterpret what his word says so we can fit it into our culture, so we can fit it into our lifestyle. They would come from the inside and they would deceive people. And Paul said, I know it's coming. And if you know the history of the Ephesian church, that's what happened. That's what happened. And you look at the book of Revelation and God warns and says, I will remove your lampstand from its place. I'll remove your church if you don't repent. The leaders, the elders in that church were to pay careful attention to themselves first. This is that whole concept, right? If you're flying in an airplane and they say, in the unlikely event that we lose cabin pressure, a mask will come out from the ceiling, right? Secure your own mask and then help others. And what's the point? The point is this. If you don't secure your own mask, you may pass out and you can't help anyone else. And so Paul here is saying, hey, leaders of the church, secure your own doctrine first. Make sure that you're studying the truth and knowing the truth and loving the truth and holding on to the truth. And then be concerned about others as well, the people who are entrusted to your care. I, as a pastor, and to make sure that I hold to the truth, that I study the truth, that I love the truth, that I can identify error when it raises up so that I can warn you about it and say, I know this is coming up and I know that it's covered in Christianity, so to speak, but it's not from God. It's not from God. This is why I preach the way that I do. I know that I may not always say things in the best possible way. I also know that I may emphasize some things a whole lot and not emphasize other things. I know that there are other things that I should mention and that I, I, I don't. It's not because I'm avoiding those. It's just because I don't feel it's uh, proper at that time. But my heart motivation is a love for God. My heart motivation is a love for the truth. My heart motivation is a love for you. That's why I do it. My heart motivation is also one of fear, okay? Because I know 
that I will stand before God one day and he will say to me, how did you care for the people that I entrusted to you? You got up there every Sunday. What message did you preach to them? What message did you instruct them in private? Did you tell them that they would be okay when I said that they would not be okay? He will hold me accountable for how I taught you. So at the end of the day, no disrespect, I don't care what you think of me, right? Because I will answer to God and not you on the last day. And that's why I preach the way that I do. I'll stand before him and I'll give an account. So what does this have to do with Ephesians chapter two, which we've been in in the last uh, couple of weeks? And I would say it has a lot to do with it. Our text is all about how God took these two sinful groups, which were completely hostile towards one another, had nothing in common, Jews and Gentiles. And you got to understand the culture of the day to understand how severe this is. But he took those two hostile groups and he brought them together in Christ. And he made one new humanity out of them, one new man, as the text says. Let me read again our text. from Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Uh, prior to that, in verse 11, he's talking about how they were once excluded. The Gentiles were once excluded. They were far off. And then beginning in verse 13, he starts off with this wonderful, wonderful word. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those of us who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If you were listening, you would hear both one piece over and over and over again. That's what he came to do, to make us one, to bring peace with God and peace with each other. God's desire was to provide a way for sinful humanity to be reconciled to himself and to each other as well. He made us into one new humanity in Christ, a redeemed humanity. He did this by sending his son into the world. God's desire was to bring us together in Christ, but it did not stop there because God's desire also is to keep us together in Christ, to keep us together in Christ. Why do I state the obvious? Because Satan is alive and well. And Satan is a real being who works every minute of every day to tear us apart. 
That's what he wants to do. He wants you to get angry at me. He wants me to get angry at you. He wants you all to get angry at each other. Wants us to fight over the smallest of things. A few months ago, I was constantly talking about unity in the church, praying for it, um, which prompted some to ask, what's going on in Galveston Bible Church? Like, what is the problem? Like, is it just everyone wanting to kill them, you know, kill each other, you know? And I, my quick answer to them was, you don't know what I know, right? As a pastor, um, I know where the divisions are. Uh, And it broke my heart. There were significant divisions in the church at the time. Today, I am very, very thankful to say that we are in a much healthier place than we were a couple months ago. And I would say that I believe that in large part it's due to the fact that a group of us meet every Sunday in between services to read the Bible together and to pray together. We pray for each other. We pray for the church. We pray for the community. We pray for our governing officials as well. We meet together. We pray that God would bind us together in unity and that we would recognize those divisions and fight against them. Also, as a pastor, I feel that it's necessary for me to keep my finger on the pulse um, of uh, America, uh, of the American and church culture. I need to know what's going on in America. I need to know what's going on in the culture. To that end, I read a lot and I watch a lot of videos, uh, a lot of uh, uh, YouTube videos from pastoral and political commentators to see what's going on in the world. And what I see every day, and I'm going to have to take a fast from it because it's so discouraging, but what I see every day is that there are major, major divisions in the church. Major divisions in the church. Several months ago, I talked about the response of the church to the pandemic, the coronavirus, and to the George Floyd murder. And what we saw is that this pandemic and this uh, situation with the, with the uh, murder of George Floyd split the country right down the middle and also split the church right down the middle. There were people on both sides of the aisle, Christians fighting against each other, being torn apart because of their various views. Today, those things are still ravaging the church, but we also have the old enemies of sexual ethics and gender identity that are still rearing their ugly heads as well. The church is at war with each other, and this is a very, very sad thing. We're at war with each, if we're at war with each other, then it will be very difficult for us to fight in the battle that we are called to fight against, and that is against the world, the flesh, and the devil, the evil system of this world, the flesh, our sinful desires, and the devil. What has happened to the church? The eternal souls of people are on the line, and we're fighting over everything. We're fighting over everything. Now, I don't have the time to go into it right now. Um, I thought about doing that, and if I did go over everything I wanted to talk about today, we would be here till probably 2 uh, p.m., and I'm not going to do that to you guys. Um, We'll say that for another time. Um, But in my opinion, many of the fights that the church is going over right now that are involved in are issues that we should not be fighting over. They're no-brainers, in my opinion. Uh, Issues that have been the standard of teaching for years, for centuries, and now are being questioned now are being questions and questioned. And now we have whole churches who are embracing outright immorality in the name of Jesus. And it's sad. According to our passage in Ephesians chapter 2, 
Um, verse 16 Here's what God wanted to do. He sent his son as a sacrifice for us so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body, thereby killing the hostility that existed among us. Do you think he wants us to still be hostile towards each other? Absolutely not. That's, uh, and according to verse 17, he came and preached peace to all. He preached peace to all. And according to verse 18, we both have access in the same spirit to the Father. There's not multiple spirits. There is one spirit, and we, are all, we all have access to God through him. The results are found in verse 19, and these are amazing. Verses 19 through 22, and we're going to dwell on this for just a little bit. Verse 19 says this, um, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and members of the household of God. People, if you're a Christian today, if you love God, if you've given your life to him, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's where your citizenship is. Your leader, your king is Jesus. And this is why it's so very sad when we as the church act like citizens of this world when we act, um, when we take marching orders from Satan, who comes as an angel of light, <clears throat> when he tells us, this is what you should think about this issue. Here's what we need to know about this citizenship that we have in heaven. It is a kingdom. It is in a kingdom that will never, ever pass away. All of the great civilizations of the past have failed. They have fallen. Think about, I was thinking about this this week, that think about the great pride that Roman citizens would have taken in their citizenship in the first century. Rome was amazing, amazing technologically. They built roads that went throughout the whole known world at the time. I'm a Roman citizen. If you go to Rome today, it lies in ruins. It is in ruins. Or think about the Egyptian civilization, right? Amazing, amazing. People would have taken great pride in that. Egypt lies in ruins today. And I'm going to tell you this as well. America will one day lie in ruins. It will one day lie in ruins. But the kingdom of heaven never passes away. You will never see ruins in the kingdom of heaven. You won't. And this is why, uh, if you look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 11 particularly, as the author is talking about these great people of the faith, he says this, that they passed on the riches and comforts of this world so that they could embrace the riches and the comforts of the world to come. Because there, not here, there they had a lasting city, a lasting inheritance that would never pass away. And Jesus said, don't store up treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven that never, ever fade away. So yes, we are citizens of God's kingdom, but even more amazingly, we are members of the household of God. We're members of the household of God. God is our Father, 
and we are his beloved children. There's no greater father. There is no greater provider. There is no greater protector in the world than God. When we're afraid, he puts his arms around us and says, fear not. Don't be afraid. I'm here. When we cry, he wipes away all our tears. When we're lonely, he draws close to us and he reminds us that we are his treasured possession. You're my treasured possession. When we're anxious, he brings peace. When we fail, and we do that a lot, he offers forgiveness and mercy. He never turns us away. When we're confused, he brings clarity. And even if that clarity doesn't come as quickly as we want it to, he calms us down and says, wait on me. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. Be patient. And one day, he'll bring us home to be with him forever, where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more sickness, no more pain, for the former things will pass away. He'll replace all the bad with good. We're members of his household. If you're here today and you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, you have a seat at the table of the King of Kings. And he delights in you. He delights in you. You're looking at yourself. I know I look at myself and say, there's no way that that's true. There is no way. I look at myself. I know my secret thoughts. I know how I treat people. How in the world could a holy God delight in such a heap of dung, all right? That's how I feel about myself, right? And the truth is that in Christ, he sees me as perfect and he sees me as beautiful. And he's called me his treasured possession. Finally, according to verses 20 through 22, we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets where Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. And this whole structure grows up into a holy temple in the Lord. He's building us into the dwelling place of God. This is an amazing thought that I am the dwelling place of God, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and uh, 20, Paul says this as plain as you can, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You don't own your body anymore. God, through his spirit, has taken up residence in your body. He lives in you. The God who created this world lives in you as a Christian. Do you think that you're important to God? You better believe you're important to him. He purchased you with his own blood, and now he comes and dwells within you and calls you his child. That's crazy. It's amazing. It's the truth. There's so much more that we could say about this, but here's what I want you to know. We here at GBC, we are one in the Spirit. We are one. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are family. We have one Father, God. We have one older brother, Jesus. We have one comforter and guide, the Holy Spirit. We all have the same one. We are all in the same family. It is not us against each other. It is us against the world, the flesh, and the devil. When we fight against each other, it makes it very difficult for us to fight in the battle that we're called to. 
We're enlisted in God's army, and we fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil, not against each other. When we fight against each other, we have to take our eyes off of the real battle so that I can fight against you, my brother, my sister. And when we do that, we lose ground. Evil progresses in the world, and Satan's kingdom is expanded. And that should not be. As I mentioned earlier, I'm so thankful for the progress that we've seen in this church. Um, uh, I, I love it, but we must fight to maintain that unity. We have to fight. We can't say, hey, we've arrived. Cool. Let's let go. No, we fight to maintain that unity. Take some time today. This is what I want you to know. Take some time today or this week to meditate again on the incredible price that Jesus paid to bring you to himself and to make us one in him. Take some time to do that. This, today or this week, meditate on that and how important it is to stay together. He paid so much so that you and I would not fight together. How dare we fight against each other? Also, take some time to thank God for the people who are in this church who love God and love you as well. Praise God for those who hold fast to the truth, even if it costs them their jobs or their livelihood. Praise God for that. Thank God for the variety of gifts and personalities and, ab and abilities that he's given to the people in this church. We're all different, which is wonderful. We all have a different place, a different role in his kingdom, in his households. Thank God for the variety of places also that he has put the people in this church. Some in various schools, some in various places of employment, some in various neighborhoods, places that you and I may never be able to reach, but other people in this church are able to reach them because God has put them there. We are one in Christ. Let's function as a unit. Several years ago, a, a movie came out uh, called Miracle. I don't know if you've seen that movie. It's the true story about the um, uh, 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. Uh, for decades, this hockey team, uh, it's always made up of different people, but um, they just got blown out by their opponents, especially the Russians. They had not beaten the Russians in, in decades. Um, and so a team was put together by a coach, um, a team of amateurs, because at this time, you couldn't have any professionals playing in, in the Olympics, at least in the United States. Other countries probably violated that. But anyway, so you had all these amateurs that came from various colleges and universities across the country. And they loved their colleges, and they hated people from other colleges. They took great pride in their college. And many of these uh, players that were coming together in this U.S. national team had most likely played against each other in national championships and one won and the other lost. And so now they're brought together. They're brought together. And part of the coach, coach Herb Brooks's job was to make a team out of them. And throughout practice, if you watch the movie, uh, and this is a true story once again, is he would periodically stop in practice and look at a particular player and say, what's your name and who do you play for? And so a typical response might be Steve Janicek. I, I play for the University of Minnesota. And he would keep doing this for weeks and weeks. Finally, after a disappointing loss in a game that they really should have won, and, and Coach Brooks is just looking at them, they just didn't seem to care. And they're starting to skate off the ice and he says, oh, no, 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 no. 
if you're not going to work during the game, you're going to work now. We're going to practice right now. And they're like, you're crazy. Like, everyone's leaving. They're shutting down the place. And he said no. And he told them to get on the line, and he had them do what are known in the sports world as suicides. Probably not the best word, but anyway, the suicides. And what you do is you start off at the one end line, and then you skate as fast as you can to the nearest next line, and then you skate back quickly. And then you go to the next furthest line, and then you skate back. And then you go to the final farthest line, and you skate back. And if you've ever done those, whether running or skating, they are exhausting, right? And the coach is there, you know, never getting tired, right? Because he just blows the whistle. So they're doing this over and over again. They're doing this so long that the people who are running the rink say, we got to go. Like, you got to set this down. So they shut the lights down. And the players are like, it's over. He's like, oh, no, we're not done. Give me the key. I'll lock up. And he continues to blow the whistle. He continues to tell his assistant coach to blow the whistle again, again, to where the assistant coach and the medical doctor for the team are like, Herb, this is madness. This is madness. You're going to kill them. They're throwing up. They can't even catch their breath. You have to stop. And Herb Brooks is undeterred because he's got a message to give to them. He's got a purpose. And he says again, again, And finally, in between these rounds of suicides, one of the players is just exhausted. He he can't even catch his breath, but he yells out, Mike Arruziona, Winthrop, Massachusetts. And he's catching his breath. And Herb stops and looks at him and says, who do you play for? And he said, I play for the United States of America. And Herb says, that's all, gentlemen. We're done. The practice was over. Why? Because they got the message, right? They got the message that we're not just a bunch of hockey players, individuals that have come together. We are a team, and we represent a whole nation. And at one point, Herb even said, their coach said, the name on the front is a whole heck of a lot more important than the name on the back. They became a team, and they did. They accomplished the impossible. They went on to beat the Russians, a team that they had not beaten in decades, and a team that they had actually lost to a couple weeks before, 10 to 3. They beat them in the semifinals and went on to win the gold medal. Why? Because they came together as a team. They realized that they all had a common mission. Well, this is what we're to do as well. Here's what I want you to know. We need to be united as a team as well. As a church, we need to to see each other in the proper way. We need to get to know each other in this church. We need to talk to one another. We need to serve one another. We need to pray for one another. I know the tendency of a lot of times is as soon as that whistle blows, right, we're out out the back doors of the church and we don't talk to other people. We don't get to know them. You know, it's almost like don't make eye contact with anyone because you'll have to talk to them, right? Avoid eye contact. No, we should be saying what's going on in your life. And when they say it's been a rough week, we don't say, oh. We say, tell me about it. Tell me about it. How can I pray for you this week? There are people in this church who are weary. 
They've been serving and serving and serving and they're tired and they need a break and they need someone else to stand up and say, let me relieve you right now in this season in your life. There are people in this church who have been knocked down. They're giving into temptation more than they've ever done before. And they're sinking in the guilt of that. And they're ashamed to come to church. There are people in this church who are struggling in their marriages, struggling in the raising of their children. They feel like failures. There's people in this church who are lonely and the enemy is convincing them that no one will ever love you. You'll never find a husband. You'll never find a wife. No one will care for you. We need to look for those people. We need to get to know the people in this church. We need to look out for one another. Jesus brought us together. Satan wants to tear us apart. Satan wants us to fight against each other. He wants us to ignore each other. He knows that when we're divided, we will fall. There's tough times coming ahead for the church. So we're in the tough times right now. The gospel is being suppressed. God is being misrepresented. The souls of men, women, and children are at stake. We must come together. We need to know what our gifts are. We need to know, I need to know how God has designed me and what my role in this church is. And you need to know how God has designed you and what your role in this church is. And you need to employ that. You need to be active in the service of this church. You need to be active so that you can build up people who need to be built up and that you can make disciples as Jesus commanded us to do. That's what we need to do. This world is diseased and dying. You and I have the cure. It's the gospel. Let's come together and bring the message of salvation to the world. That is the highest calling that we could ever have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Your word cuts, and it should. It cuts like a surgeon to heal. Remove selfishness from us. Remove sin from us. And help us to function as a unit, as a body. Bind us together in unity, Lord. Please, if there's anyone who's fighting right now, anyone who has a disagreement with someone, anyone who's harboring anger towards someone, let us get it taken care of before the sun goes down, Lord. And let us to take, take serious uh, the battle that we're in for your glory and the good of this island this state, this nation, and this world. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.